you get this very, very different shape of progress. It's not this ever rising line of growth. It's balance. And, and all I can do with my hands, it's sort of, they kind of move in and out and in and out. It's finding the thriving balance. And, and as I do it with my hands, this sense of together and apart, together and apart. It's like a heartbeat. It's, it's something, there's something very profound. I haven't even quite got my head around. And if you look at the symbols of well-being in many ancient cultures, a Maori takarangi or the Taoist yin yang or the Buddhist endless knot or the Celtic double spiral, what absolutely blew me away when I first started looking for them is they all embody this sense of dynamic balance in a circle, something that's moving, it's in a circle, it's got energy, but it's wisdom from other cultures of what well-being is. So the donut, in essence, it's how can we meet the needs of all people within the means of the living planet? And I think that is the 21st century question. run out of excuses and we are running out of time. We're looking at mass starvation within 10 years. The reality is we're sleepwalking into a catastrophe. Change is coming, whether you like it or not. Welcome to the Extinction Rebellion podcast. I'm Jessica Townsend and today I'm joined by Will Farbrother. Hi Will. Hi Jessica. This podcast is being brought to you in collaboration with Money Rebellion, which is a new initiative from Extinction Rebellion, and it's taking place in a very interesting week for economics. Why is that, Will? Well, in terms of economics, we're really in the shit. So it's not just ecological and climate breakdown that we're facing, but mainstream economists are essentially ignoring the, the problem. So this week, the Nobel Prize for Economics, or the so-called Nobel Prize for Economics, it's not a real Nobel award, actually, but that's a, a separate issue, was awarded to two Stanford professors in America for work they did on, on auctions a decade ago. It's totally irrelevant to the challenges humanity faces. Yeah, I guess economics is still focused on business as usual because the people with invested interests have too much to lose if we shift. So today's interview is with someone who takes a completely different and very fresh approach. This is Kate Raworth, the author of Donut Economics. I think the way we draw the shape of progress really matters. We are visual creatures. We search for meaning in the patterns we see. And when I was an economic student in the early 1990s, the underlying picture of what the shape of progress was, was an ever-rising line, like an exponential growth curve going up, 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 just off the page, through the ceiling. In fact, it was so deeply assumed it was never actually drawn on the page. It just sat underneath every conversation about economic growth. And that shaped everything I was taught. And... It took me years of walking away from academic economics and immersing myself in real world challenges and learning about the life supporting systems of our planet to come full circle and be part of drawing a new diagram that does not look like an ever rising line. It looks like a donut. And that sounds ridiculous. But if you say donut with a hole in the middle, everyone immediately knows exactly what you're talking about. There's an inner ring and an outer ring. So imagine a donut with a hole in the middle. And imagine humanity's use of Earth's resources radiating out from the centre of that picture. So the place in the hole in the middle of the donut is a place where people are falling short on the essentials of life. It's where people don't have the food and water and the healthcare and housing and education and political voice and income that every person 
in the world has a claim to so that they can lead a life of dignity and opportunity and community. So leave no one falling short in the hole in the middle. Get everyone into that juicy donut itself. And you could even say that was a 20th century challenge. It was the 20th century story of human rights. And in the 21st century, we know more. We now understand that all of humanity's well-being depends upon Earth's life-supporting systems being in balance. We can't overshoot climate change. We get breakdown. We can't over-acidify the oceans or use excessive fertilizer or convert too much land or pollute the air. And so there's an outer ring to this donut too. If, if the hole in the middle is where people are falling short, the outer limit is where we can't overshoot the means of our living planet and push her out of balance. So we need to leave no one falling short in the hole in the middle without overshooting Earth's life-supporting systems. And it doesn't sound like classic economics. <laughs> no, it sounds a bit different. And, uh, but what's really interesting is if you go way back before the economics that's been taught in the sort of 20th century, if you go back, 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 economic thinkers embody these ideas and actually thought about what is well-being. Adam Smith wanted to create economies where people were in a sort of reciprocal relation of meeting each other's needs and providing enough revenue to provide for public services. You know, that's to him what, what the goal of the economy was. Other economists, Sissamundi, centuries ago, saw that well-being was about humanity in relation to the living world. So there's, a, there's an alternative stream of economics, which bizarrely has been called humanistic economics, which to me just makes you wonder what the rest of it is. If that's humanistic economics, what, what do we actually teach students in universities? Economics in universities just far, far too often starts with a crisscross of supply and demand. So bang, day one, we're in the market. We didn't ask what's the purpose of the economy. We didn't ask what's human well-being. We didn't ask what's humanity's relationship to the rest of the living world. We just went, welcome to economics, here's the market. And here's the plan demand and here's price. And it's the primary metric that we're going to work by. And then everything just follows that. So I think that's a crime. I think every economic student deserves. And, and by the way, they're all studying right now, right? It's, it's the first week of the first term in many universities worldwide. Welcome to economics. What are they learning? What's the first picture? They deserve to start with a big picture that shows that the economy is a subsystem of society. It is a social construct. We invented it. It's made up of human relationships that we've chosen and designed, and we can redesign. And society is embedded in the rest of the living world and utterly dependent upon it. And our economies draw in Earth's materials and matter from timber and water and spew out waste and pollution like carbon dioxide and plastics. And we need to create economies that work with and within the cycles of the living world and that meet the needs of all people. And when we start from those principles, first, economic students, their eyes are popping with excitement, like, yeah, yeah, this is what I want to study. And two, we just have to come up with totally different dynamics from the 20th century models because we've never tried to do this before. And it feels like what classic economics does is it frames out a lot of what is in your picture. So things like pollution, things like natural resources and replenishing them. If you're just a small group of people in the, on the earth, you can afford to frame those out because to an extent they're infinite in the sort of scale that you're measured in. But that's the trouble. We're now, we now seem to have acquired a scale where we're 
absolutely affecting the whole planet. And so it needs to be factored in. Yes. And to me, the diagram that catches this is a brilliant picture by one of the founding fathers of ecological economics called Herman Daly. And he drew this picture of an economy is a square, think of a square inside a circle. And in what he called empty world, we used to live, just as you described, we used to live, you could say, in empty world where the economy was relatively small to the rest of the living world. So humanity could use Earth's resources and, and there was a bit of pollution coming out. But, you know, the sky is so vast, the sea is so wide and nature is abundant and plentiful. There'll always be more. And then the colonialism of the 19th, 20th century meant that Apparently there is more, right? High-income countries today and colonial countries occupied other countries' land and proved as if to themselves, oh, yes, there's more. And so didn't factor in the fact that ecosystems are delicately balanced and you can knock them out of balance if you use them the wrong way or excessively. So you could say economics that we have used was designed for empty world. But as Herman Daly says, hey, we live in full world. We live in a world in which the scale and the consumptive impact of the human economy is so large that the way we draw on Earth's sources, we are literally deforesting her lungs. We are polluting the air that we breathe and all that nature depends upon. We are breaking down the climate system. So we have to put the relationship between Earth and use of resources and the living world at the heart and on the first page of an economics textbook if we're going to begin to do economics for the 21st century. It has to be the, the, the first frame. And looking at the model in a little bit more detail, I think that most, a lot of humanity will be in the hole at the moment, at the centre of the donut. And a lot... Some of those planetary boundaries are being transgressed. There are nine, but are they sort of set? Are they scientifically set? Or do we just know that there is a boundary and we've got to work out? So you're absolutely right. Billions of people worldwide live in the hole of the donut. They don't have enough food to eat every day. They don't have decent housing. They don't have safety, protection from gender violence. They don't have sufficient ed income or education or health care. And most of those people are in poor countries, but anyone of us can walk out of our homes and into the city streets and no doubt we find people living in deprivation right in the midst of plenty. So it's worldwide. In terms of the planetary boundaries, in terms of the outer ring of the donut, what's been so important over the last decade is the breakthroughs in science and understanding around this. So when Herman Daly drew that diagram I was talking about, and he said, you know, the economy's banging into Earth's ecosystems, he couldn't define what are those ecosystems and where is the limit of pressure. But in 2009, a group of nearly 30 Earth system scientists came together and they said, there's something very special about the phase that our living Earth home has been in for the last 11,000 years. It's called the Holocene and it's the most stable and benevolent phase of Earth's history for humanity. That's why human civilizations have risen up and thrived and we've invented agriculture the worldwide and we have seasons and we can rely on nature's regularity. What is it about these last 11,000 years that's made Earth so stable? And that's how they identify what they call these planetary boundaries. They said, we think there are nine critical life-supporting systems that hold Earth in this balance. Just as I, I can say at the level of my body, what keeps me alive? 
well, it's my digestive system that's in balance and I have enough food, but not too much. It's my respiratory system. I have enough air and the right balance of air, but not too much. It's my skeletal system, my muscular system, my nervous system. They all work in balance and the combined effect keeps me alive and healthy. So we can just take that from the bodily metaphor to the planetary metaphor. Earth has, over these last 11,000 years, a stable climate. Temperature hasn't varied either one degree above or below. And that has been crucial for the biodiversity and the, the, and the abundance of life forms. It's been crucial for healthy oceans, for land being covered in its natural vegetation and having a diversity of crops and species. We've had clean air, ample fresh water circulating in a hydrological cycle. So if we put too much pressure on any one of these life-supporting systems, we risk kicking ourselves out of the Holocene, out of this home sweet home for humanity. And, and the four areas in which we're currently overshooting are, as we all know, on climate. So the, the safe level, as it were, like don't go beyond this, is 350 parts per million of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. And we're over 415 right? So we're way over that one. But we're also massively over on biodiversity loss, species extinction, the breakdown of ecosystem collapse. And we're massively over on fertilizer use. So nitrogen and phosphorus are combined in fertilizers, massively over applied to crops worldwide. They don't get taken up by the crops. They leach out in the soil and run off into lakes and rivers and kill off aquatic life. And the last one, We've converted far too much of Earth's surface for human use. We've dominated too much of the, the land area. And so reduced you know, native species, reduced the diversity of species, created monocultures. So we're over four of these planetary boundaries. We've gone past the don't go past this point. There's no, no safety past here. We're over that. And we've got to come back within those four at the same time as meeting the needs of all people for the first time in human history. That's the unique thing about our generation. We're the first generation to know that this is a double-sided problem, poverty and ecological degradation, and we have to solve them together. And no generation before us ever tried this. So we shouldn't imagine that last generation's economic models or business models or policies would get us there because they weren't designed to tackle the challenges that we face today. We've got to come up with ideas and designs and policies of our own. One of the problems with that, that we're facing, is this economic model that's based on GDP. Now, it seems to me when you're talking about overshoot, that we need to kind of rein GDP in. But that's not quite your point of view, is it? So GDP is a really useful metric if you want to know the financial value of goods and services that were sold in an economy in a year. It, that's what it tells you right? How much was paid for all the things that were produced? You can flip that around and say, how much did we earn from all the things we produced? That's what it tells you. And it, GDP was the metric of the 20th century, largely because we weren't worrying about those planetary boundaries. And we're saying, well, if we expand industry and expand income, and industries were very labor intensive, they tend to create jobs. So expanding GDP tended to expand wages and wages put money in households' hands and they could meet their wants and needs useful in the 20th century. Trouble is, in the 21st century, we know more. We know that the way that we generate GDP is using Earth's resources and putting pollution into Earth's sinks. And so at the same time as meeting households' needs, we are running down the living planet on which every household depends. So we need new metrics for our new times and our new understanding. And to me, what matters, instead of focusing on GDP and is it going up that never-ending growth curve, 
We need to create new dynamics. We need to create economies that are regenerative by design. So economies that work with and within these cycles of the living world. And that means they have to be circular or cyclical economies where resources are used again and again, far more slowly, more creatively, more carefully and more collectively. By the way, that will create jobs and interesting jobs. And we need to create economies that are far more distributive. So the structures of our industries inherited again from the 20th century and the business models that underlie them and shareholder ownership means that many economic processes are driving the returns of industry into the hands of a 1%. And we need to create new structures and new industries that are far more distributive of the value that's created. So to me, what matters the most is are our economies becoming far more regenerative? Are they becoming far more distributive? Because together, that is the dynamic that will bring us into the donut. Now, what happens to GDP? Maybe it'll go up. Maybe it'll go down. I think a lot of high-income countries need to massively reduce their resource use. And so that's a huge challenge to the idea that GDP will keep going up, 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 up. We can be far more efficient than we've ever been in the past. But I've not yet seen evidence that a country can carry on presuming that it's going to grow endlessly while coming back within carbon emissions and total resource use and consumption on anything like the speed and scale that's required. Can I just add one more point because it's really important. If I'm sitting now talking in Malawi or Tanzania or India, now these are countries where there's massive poverty and their impact on the planet is far, far smaller. They're well within their fair share, as it were, per person of impact on Earth's planetary boundaries. So they can, I believe, see their incomes grow, see their economies grow. They just have to make them grow in a completely different way than economies have grown in the past. They have to rapidly make sure they grow in a regenerative way and a distributive way so that as they grow, they meet all people's needs and they do it without overshooting the planet as all high-income countries before them have done. You just reminded me there of when I interviewed Christiana Figueres and I was talking about stopping growth and she was, no, (laughs) some countries need absolutely. And she was very fierce on that point. Can I jump in there? I completely agree some countries need to grow. And that is used almost like a shield by high income countries that kind of want, well, me too, we're going to keep growing. And and it's to the high income countries that the challenge stands. Hang on, guys, you are way over planetary boundaries. You are consuming on a scale that is totally unsustainable for this planet. So you need to massively reduce your ecological impact. Now, if you think you're going to do that in a way that assumes you can just have 3% growth next year and the year after and forevermore, and by the way, your economy will be double its size in value within 20 years, You need to prove first that you can decarbonize and dematerialize your economy before you just presume that that's going to work because the presumption of endless green growth is running ahead of any proof that it's happening. How do you manage to be so positive? Do you not bother too much about exactly what mechanism is going to kind of switch us over and just feel like we need, we need to get on with the work in front of us? Or how do you keep that going? There's a lovely quote from André Gide. He said, everything that needs to be said has already been said. But since nobody was listening, it has to be said again. And I feel like I'm part of a wave, another wave of people saying it again, this time with donuts, this time with more pictures, this time. So let's keep saying it again and again. Now, should we despair because I'm almost 50. That means the ideas of limits to growth have been around for 50, nearly 50 years. Should we despair? 
Well, let's look at the Mont Pelerin Society, which was formed in 1947, the birth of the concept of neoliberalism. They gave birth to that idea in 1947 and said, let's get this idea ready to actually take over the economic world. They weren't put on the international stage as an actual policy until the early 1980s of Reagan and Thatcher. So it took decades. Now, maybe, maybe this is about to happen. So to your point of do I think, do I want to give up and do I have a look? Yeah, sure, you have desperate moments, but you think, I ain't going to give up now. Maybe this is the point when things are going to start taking off. And I'm totally happy to dedicate my lifetime to the possibility that it might take off because I can't think of anything better to do. And what keeps me going? What keeps me going is the resonance from so many people who are already doing it and already putting it into practice, whether they're doing it as teachers in a classroom or people running small enterprises and setting up an enterprise that just is regenerative and distributive by design, designing it from day one to be like that, or policymakers who are working on the inside, really trying to make this happen. So it's the fact that there's clearly a movement internationally trying to bring these ideas and these new values and dynamics about, I mean, why on earth would you give up when when there's that much energy around trying to make this happen? Well, that brings us neatly on to the work that you're trying to practically do in the world right now, which is so welcome because people in XR have been pushing their local councils and, Mm. you know, we've had parliament declare a climate and ecological emergency. And then people sit around and think, well, how can what do we want them to do next? (laughs) They've declared it. They're not doing anything. But where is the framework of how to progress this? And it feels like we're in such a complicated world with so many different dynamics. And the work that you're doing is giving a structure and a framework to that. So would you mind talking us through, say, the Amsterdam project? You call it DEAL? So I first drew the picture of the donut in 2012 when I worked at Oxfam and it was published as a sort of discussion paper. Oh, this is a kind of interesting idea. Let's just float it out there. And it had so much traction. We were completely taken aback by it. And I was fascinated by the power of an image and kept pursuing it and just suddenly found myself in all sorts of conversations that ultimately led me to leave my job at Oxfam, realise the next best piece of advocacy I can do is to write a book about this. So I left my job to do the most effective advocacy. I wrote a book about it, it came out in 2017. And then I spent two years going around presenting this book, responding to invitations, just talking, 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 oh, don't economics, what if the world was like this? What if we did this? And then after two years, my kids saying, mum, we never see you. And I'm thinking, okay, enough talking. Who actually wants to do this? Actually, who is already doing this? Because everywhere I go, people will come up to me afterwards. I'm a teacher. This isn't on the curriculum, but I teach this to my students on day one because this is the worldview they need. I'm, I'm a CEO. I'm starting to do this in my enterprise and we're designing our ownership and finance to make this possible. I'm a policymaker. I'm a town councillor. I'm a community activist. And I'm. it's like, wow, people are doing this. So I got really excited by the fact that the most inspiring person is often not someone standing on a stage or on the telly or on the TV or on the on the radio. It's the it's the person who's just like you, who's already doing that thing that you thought was impossible. But there it is. They're doing it. A teacher like you or a mayor like you or a child like you or a CEO like you. So I thought, let's set up Donut Economics Action Lab. That's deal. And create it as an open access co-community of designing these tools and resources. Let me just put all these ideas in the commons 
and see what happens when people adapt them and evolve them in line with the principles of donor economics so they don't get co-opted and captured. And that's a really important part of it. What will happen when people do that and then can see each other doing it? Here, you know, a teacher says, oh, this is how I teach donor economics in my classroom. Another teacher goes, bow, wow. And I'm going to add this. And together we co-create these tools online. So that's what we set up. And we just launched literally this time last week. So I'm just in utter excitement of seeing we've now got 1,700 people who've joined in the first week from all over the world. We've had visitors from over 100 countries, from all sorts of different backgrounds. And they want to come and co-create these tools and then take them out in their communities and use them. And to bring the point about, you know, local councils or UK Parliament declaring a climate and ecological emergency. Yeah, brilliant. Let's declare that emergency. And then, of course, the question is, and what do we do next? So for me, another principle is making practice part of your protest. So I'm all for protests and I'm, I'm very proud to have been on the bridges, right? Blocking those bridges. And let's put into practice where we can. So let's also be clear what we're for and articulate that, what we're for. So that's why I always talk about being for regenerative and distributive economies, an economy that lives within the donut, if you like, but regenerative design, distributive design, that's what we're for. How can we bring it about in business, in policy, in cities and communities? So we've just launched this community and it's a very intentional name, Donut Economics Action Lab. It's about action. We're not we're not here just to talk about ideas and to have a, like a, a discussion about different policies. Let's Let's do it. And it's a lab because all of this is an experiment because we're inventing. So we'll make mistakes and we'll learn amazing things and we'll co-create together and we'll do it in different ways in different places. I'm really thrilled that we've got members from high income cities and nations and we've got people from Costa Rica and from South Africa and Zambia and India. So very different perspectives will come through. So that sounds really exciting, but I haven't really got a purchase on the sort of nitty gritty side of it. What does this look like when we actually bring it to a place? So one tool that we've worked on of downscaling the donut, like how do you bring the donut to a city? And I've worked with a woman who, to be honest, is my hero. Her name is Janine Benyus. She is one of the very leading thinkers in the field of biomimicry and how can humanity learn and contribute to and mimic nature's genius. And together we came up with a framework for bringing the donut down to the scale of a city. So I'm just going to speak to people. Imagine yourself in in, in a city that you know or love or hate, (laughs) but you want to see transformed and ask of the city this question. How can your city be a home to thriving people in an ecologically thriving place while respecting the well-being of all people and the health of the whole planet? That's the question we bring to cities. And we've dived into it in the city of Amsterdam first. So how can your city be a home to thriving people? Well, what does it mean to the the people of the city to thrive? And that's going to vary city to city based on culture, based on history, based on location. So what do people here think thriving means in terms of community, in terms of belonging, in terms of meeting everybody's needs? And how are we doing? What would it mean for the city to thrive within its ecological habitat. So every city that humanity has created is located somewhere on planet Earth. It's located in a particular biome. And in that biome, nature has a genius. Nature has evolved to cope with latitude and longitude and the heat and the height. And nature knows how to cool the air from the treetops to the forest floor. Nature knows how to store groundwater after a storm. Nature knows how to house biodiversity in that place. Nature knows how to store carbon in that place. What if the city aimed to match or exceed nature's brilliant generosity of the wildland next door? So literally from the city you're in, go to the nearest 
intact ha- habitat of wildland next door and ask, how is nature performing here? How, we, how can we design our city to cool the air, to store as much carbon, to house as much diversity, to store as much water after a storm? So that's local aspiration, right? Thriving people in a thriving place. And most cities have tended in the past to focus on that. Are we living really well here? Now we add to that global responsibility. Okay, let's create a beautiful, thriving life here, but we need to do it in a way that respects the health of the whole planet. So think of all the food and electronics and clothing and construction materials and consumer goods that are imported daily into your city. And think of the stream of waste that goes out once those consumer goods have been used. That In high-income cities, no doubt we are massively overshooting our impact on the planet in terms of the total consumption, and it needs to come back within planetary boundaries. So how are we going to do that? How are we going to reduce this very linear, consumptive lifestyle? Uh, How are we going to cycle more than take cars? How are we going to eat plant-based diets rather than meat-based diets? Because these kinds of things massively reduce our footprint. So we need to transform our impact on the whole planet. And then the last one, How do we ensure that we respect the well-being of people worldwide? So think again of those supply chains of food, of clothing, electronics, material goods, construction materials. Who picked and packed that fruit? Who stitched that clothing? Who transported it? Who assembled your iPhone or your your smartphone? What are the working conditions for people throughout those supply chains like? What are the communities who are impacted by the mining that gets the lithium to make the battery for the phone? How can we ensure that those supply chains respect people's rights worldwide? Now, that's a big challenge, right? Thriving people in a thriving place, respecting the well-being of all people and the health of the whole planet. But to me, that is the vision and ambition that a 21st century city needs to have. In Amsterdam, they've taken it on board because they've set themselves the goal of having zero fossil fuel vehicles in the city by 2030. They want to be a 100% circular economy by 2050 and to do it with being a far more equitable and um, participatory city. So they see the donut as a very valuable, holistic framework that goes around what they already have set themselves the goal of doing. So they're starting to build in a circular way. They're starting to create a far more circular food system, looking at materials. Can I just ask you what you mean by circular? So, for example, I have looked into recycling paper, which isn't really done properly. It's a myth that it's going on, really. But... I've been told that paper can be recycled seven times and then it kind of goes out. So that isn't really, in that particular case, it's kind of a spiral. It Mm -hmm. it stays in the air a lot longer, but eventually it does kind of get depleted. So what do you mean by circular? Great. So I actually prefer the the, the idea of a cyclical economy. Because nothing is 100% circular, right? We, we don't have perpetual motion machines. We live on a thermodynamic planet, meaning things degrade. Tractors rust, potatoes rot, paper just disintegrates. In. So, so there's a thermodynamics to the planet we live on, and we have to recognise that. But Earth has a regenerative capacity, thanks to the sun. So we need to work within the cycles of the living world. We cannot, and this is back to Herman Daly, we cannot draw more from Earth's sources than she has the capacity to generate in a year. You can't draw, you can't cut more timber than Earth can grow in a year. Otherwise, you're running down Earth's timber. You can't put waste into Earth's sinks more than she has the capacity to absorb them. So you can't emit more carbon dioxide than the Earth has the capacity to assimilate and take out of the concentration of the atmosphere. You can't put anything in the sea that Earth doesn't have the capacity to assimilate. So we need to live within Earth cycles. Now, what does it mean in terms of circularity? To me, the key principle of circularity is that the waste of one process 
needs to become a food for another. There's no such thing as waste and rubbish that's thrown away because there is no away. Nature doesn't have an away. Nature uses and breaks down everything and uses it again and again. And that's where we can learn from biomimicry. Nature breaks things down into the building blocks of life like keratin and chitin and builds them up again, again and again. So we need to create, rather than saying, okay, we're going to recycle paper endlessly. After some point, it becomes a pulp. It can't be used paper. What could it be used for instead? But also when we make buildings, for example, rather than using materials that can only be used once and when the building has finished its life, they just have to be knocked down and can't be reused again. That's called kind of glued shut design. What we need is click open design. So buildings that all of the materials that are used, the beams and the floors and the walls are put together in a way that we know they're going to be reused one day. So they're bolted rather than glued so that they can be unbolted and reused. And perhaps a familiar example for many people would be the difference between, say, an iPhone and a Fairphone. So an iPhone is kind of glued shut, right? Only Apple and their friends can get in and take it apart and change something for you. And it's not even really designed to do that. A Fairphone, you can go on YouTube and they show you a video of how to click it, click it open, change the battery, upgrade this, change that, because it's a modular design. So modular open source design, to me, is at the heart of creating a circular or cyclical economy. In your experience of working with Amsterdam, what are the sort of thorny issues that are really hard to get past at present with the levels of technology that we have? Well, I think the thorny issue is that when we start with life and the, the ambition of living within Earth's cycles, and creating business models that are far more distributed by design, we would design products like phones that were modular, that were open source, so that an open access material, so anyone can see where the materials have come from and feed them back into an ecosystem of reuse, that they would be commons-based designs so that different companies could design components that would all fit together. We wouldn't have thousands of different kinds of phones that don't connect. So we'd have a commons-based design platform. And that's antithetical to the business model followed now by so many companies that precisely do the opposite. They want to have a unique connection so that only my plug or only my headset fits in. They want to glue it shut and make it obsolete so that you have to buy a new one. They want to get you hooked into their brands so it only works with their brands and their apps. And what's driving that, I mean, sitting underneath all of this is a business model where the purpose of the business is not to create phones that are regenerative and distributive by design and belong in the living world and make people thrive. The purpose of the business model is so often to extract the maximum financial value for the owners of the business, who are often shareholders. So all the other design is designed in that interest. Oh, let's make it obsolete. Let's glue it shut. Let's make people want to upgrade all the time. Let's make it incompatible with other people's products. Let's make replacements really expensive. So it's the business model that sits underneath. It's not the design of the phone we need to worry about. It's the design of the company. We need to ask ourselves, and, and any company we ever work with, and says, oh, we want to talk about the design of our phones or our hair products or our food. We say, it's all very nice to talk about the design of your products. We actually want to start by talking about the design of your company. And there are five design traits we need to talk about. One, what is your purpose? Why do you exist? What are you in service of? Two, 
How do you network? Who are your suppliers? Who are your customers? Who are you in relationship with? Who are the communities you are connected to? And, and do they draw you towards these values that you say you want or are they actually pulling you in another direction? So you need to, to reinforce your values with your customers and through your supply chain networks. Three, how do you govern yourselves? Who's in the room when you make decisions? What are the principles, the practices, the metrics and the incentives you pay to your staff? Now, those three are the easy ones, purpose, networks and governments. Governance, those are the easy ones. Let's go to the deep stuff. How are you owned? Are you owned by your employees? Are you owned by your customers? Or are you owned by a family or venture capital or shareholders or by the government or by an individual entrepreneur? Because all of these ownership designs, which are all completely possible, they have very different implications for the bottom design and the most powerful design principle, how you're financed and what that finance is asking to do and what it demands from you. And is the finance that's invested in your company saying we invested you because obviously we want the highest, fastest financial return. And if we don't get it, we're out tomorrow. Or is that finance invested because it's saying like you, we are committed to bringing you about your purpose, which will include social and ecological transformation with a fair financial return. And what fair is, is a big question. Very different finance. So how an enterprise is owned and financed, to my mind, is the, mo the first question you need to ask to understand what that enterprise can do and be in the world and whether it can be part of this transformation. There must be so few that fit your criteria. <laughs> and yet, part of it, going back to an earlier question, what, what keeps me going, what gives me hope, is when I meet young social entrepreneurs who said, I'm setting up an enterprise, oh, we're owning it as a co-op, or it's, or it's employee-owned, or we've issued a bond amongst our customers. And you think, you are designing this thing from the bottom up precisely so that you know you can make sure it's in service to its purpose. And that gives me a lot of courage. And a lot of what you were talking about, the open source and putting things out to a kind of commons, it seems so far away from life today, but I'm older than you, but at the beginning of the internet, do you remember how exciting it was and how people were just very excited to be designing programs to share and then other people come along with slightly cleverer things and there was this sort of very creative, sort of creatively explosive almost kind of moment where there seemed to be so many possibilities. And for us, to, for that have, to have turned into something where, you know, our votes are being manipulated <laughs> in such a short journey seems so depressing, but it could be turned around. Yes, yes. This journey is not yet done. I'm so glad you ended on that because, uh, yeah, I'd say Internet 1.0, I do remember it. And, and it was, oh, this is an open creative space. And, and of course, people won't buy and sell things here. This is a, 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 a commons of ideas, right? That was the spirit. Internet 2.0, I'm going to say, is when the network effects become very clear. You know, everyone wants to be on the same network everyone else is on. And companies came in and saw this. And like, if we can be the first social site, we'll be called Facebook. Boom, we've got that market. Even we might not be the best, but because we were there first, we got, we got that network effect of everyone wanting to be on ours. So I think we're, we're in the throes of Internet 2.0, which has just been huge corporate capture and huge attention economy capture of the, its potential. And the film, The Social Dilemma, is brilliant. And I really recommend anyone to watch it say, oh, my goodness, that's how they are working on me. And, the and again, it comes down to the financial model that underpins all of the attention capture in today's apps and, and social media channels. But let's go for Internet 3.0, right? I'm working with some brilliant people in the Netherlands who are creating what they call public stack. 
So right from the hardware, through the software, through the collaborative platforms, through the ownership of ideas, everything is in the commons and is open source. So Deals, Donor Economics Action Labs platform that we've just designed, once the platform's stable and we're we're confident of the code underpinning it, we're going to put it on GitHub, which is a a software sharing site. So anybody else can take our code and make their own platform for their own purpose, just like it. Why not? Why not share it? We've we've invested money into creating a great platform. Let's share it. Let's put it in the commons. So we are part of creating a commons. And I'm becoming more and more aware of organizations setting up these cooperatively based platforms that are not serving financial interests and trying to capture our attention. They're serving the community they were designed for and owned by. So again, it's who owns and who finances the social media and the internet tools totally gets to put them in purpose that we want to use. So let's keep moving on this journey and bring on Internet 3.0 where it's commons based again. Now, I'm going to have to um, stop, but you are rolling out more of these labs. I think there's even a meeting in London and, or, or an online meeting for London people which is kickstarting something where I am. So how can people get involved? Okay, so donuteconomics.org is the address of Donut Economics Action Lab. Anybody can join. We would love people to join. Just become a member. And you can you only can join as an individual at the moment because we want to make, we, we're just thinking really carefully about which kind of organizations can join because, again, we don't want to get co-opted. So we're just saying everybody can join as yourself as an individual. Now, anyone can set up an event. So already within the first week, there's been a meetup of people that in Ireland who want to talk about donor economics. There's been a meetup in Brazil and now someone's posted one in London. It's got nothing to do with us. It's the community. It's the community making it happen. That's the, that's the joy of it. It's like, what do people do when you say, here, well, here's some space, here's some tools. So community just start and say, hey, we, let's meet up. What can we do? So anyone could pop up anywhere in the world, anywhere in the country and say, well, let's hold one for here. Who else is interested in these ideas? Let's have a conversation online. We just say, please bring back the stories of what you're doing. Right. If, if you had a really good meetup or you think you've got a good process for starting to put this into action, write it up as a tool because that will inspire other people like you. You'll be the most inspiring person and group to them. So please join us if you think the ideas of donut economics are valuable and can be put into practice in your community with your local council. We've been contacted by local councils across the UK and indeed across the world people from within councils, as well as citizens and, and residents in that place, who want to turn these into tools. So let's do it. Let's take that question I had for, for the city, thriving people in a thriving place, respecting the well-being of all people and the health of the whole planet. You could put that into practice right in any local council in the UK or indeed in any other country. It's the beginnings of a tool and a journey. So really, really welcome all XR Rebels to join the platform. I'd love to see people there. So, Will, how are you feeling about donuts now? Oh, I feel so enthused hearing Kate talk every time I hear her talk about um, uh, not just donut economics, but her take on neoclassical mainstream economics. It's it's just so uh, refreshing to hear somebody stand up and speak out about it. It's almost like she's a it's a bit like hearing a whistleblower talk in, in, in some places. She really gives a human take, doesn't she, on an area which often just seems about 
figures and graphs. She's putting humanity, people and planetary boundaries into that equation. And it suddenly seems like it's relevant to regular people. Yeah, and when she talks about the sort of economics 101, the first economics class that people do, and the the straight into supply and demand curves and the market, it's exactly right. And it, it really does feel counterintuitive when you're there in the in the lecture theatre. She really is remarkably positive about the work she's doing. And I think this is partly because her book has been very successful, but now she is actually having an effect in the world and trying to implement it in a practical way. So that, of course, is incredibly exciting. I think my concern is having had some experience, career experience working in a sort of an economic field, I know that mainstream economics really does dominate the discourse. And economists like Kate are, are referred to as heterodox economists, and they have a, a, an alternative from the mainstream view. And the mainstream tend to see them as not really contributing to the core of economics. So they'll say things like, at the good end, they'll say things like they're, they're adding to the literature or the commentary around economics, but not really pushing the science ahead. And on the other end of the spectrum, they'll call them cranks, you know, really offensive terminology to, to anybody who challenges their view. And don't forget, the mainstream economists did not predict the 2008 crash. It was just the, the heterodox ones that did. So, Will, yeah. how can people who are interested in money rebellion get involved? Just get on the website, moneyrebellion.earth will take you through to a page on the Extinction Rebellion UK website. From there, you can read more about it and there's links to much more information. There's also an action network form that you can complete and explain the sort of things that you'd like to do, everything from actions to actually coming and helping us organise it. And from then, uh, somebody will be in touch. And please do come and join us. Thank you for hosting the podcast, Will. Uh, It's always great to have you around. I've been Jessica Townsend. And I've been Will. We have run out of excuses and we are running out of time. We're looking at mass starvation within 10 years. The reality is we're sleepwalking into a catastrophe. Change is coming, whether you like it or not. Extinction!